What happens is if your expectations don't have at least some overlap with reality, your brain kind of sounds the alarm and hits the panic button. But if we go into it and we say, hey, this is going to be tough for a really long time. If we say, you know, these are the challenges that are gonna, I'm going to face. This is the anxiety I'm going to feel. Then it's like, hey, I've got a whole marathon. And, and somewhere around, you know, past halfway, it's going to get really difficult. And I just have to kind of accept that. There's no escaping that reality. When I think about taking advantage of new opportunities, there's one part that's oftentimes overlooked, the risk and uncertainty of it all. Because when you're truly first in line, there's actually no one standing behind you or beside you. And that loneliness can create a lot of anxiety, fear, and what I see most, inaction. We've all had moments where we thought of something we wanted to do, but then we ended up holding off because we couldn't balance the possibility of it working out with the fear that it might not. And then when you missed out and that woulda, shoulda, coulda moment actually worked out for everyone else that took it, it creates regret. I know it's hard to take a risk and to fight that voice inside of your head telling you not to, and most of all, to be confident enough to believe that you can bounce back if things don't go your way. So on this episode of First in Line, I want you to see that you're not alone in the fear of taking big risks. In fact, Many of the most successful people I know had to risk it all in order to become who they are today. Whether it's someone like supermodel Tyra Banks or a wildly successful entrepreneur like Gary Vaynerchuk, the rise to the top isn't as easy as you might think. The good news is that having things go your way isn't all about luck. There's actually a mindset and approach that can turn even the scariest chance into an empowering opportunity. So to help you have more clarity today, you'll learn from best-selling author and performance coach, Steve Magnus. He is an expert at helping people navigate risk. And his latest book, Do Hard Things, is a blueprint for helping people prepare for life's hardest challenges. On this episode of First in Line, you'll learn how to make your big risks seem a little less scary so you're able to take action when any opportunity comes your way. This episode is brought to you by Element. I'm obsessed with all things health and wellness. I love learning about the latest trends, trying different hacks, and figuring out what works best for my body. And if there's one thing I know for certain, it's that hydration is essential to better health. Unfortunately, most of us don't realize that there's a more effective way to hydrate. Element is a tasty, science-backed electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means just the right amount of salt without all the sugar, food coloring, artificial ingredients, and other unnecessary fillers. Right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single-serving packets free with any Element order. That's a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a friend. Get yours at drinklmnt.com slash Brit. Try it risk-free and experience the endless benefits of better hydration. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. One of the hardest parts of being an entrepreneur and mom is making sure I create a daily routine that keeps me healthy. AG1 is a big part of making sure I win my mornings. Instead of taking endless vitamins and pills, one scoop of AG1 provides 75 high-quality vitamins and minerals, whole food-sourced ingredients, 
probiotics, and adaptogens to help me start my day right. It gives me the peace of mind I need to ensure I'm taking care of my gut health, supporting my immune system, and naturally boosting my energy and focus. As a listener of First In Line, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Morin to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Well, I'm so excited to welcome Steve Magnus onto the show. Uh, he is a leading researcher and expert on resilience, and his new book is called Do Hard Things, which is all about the idea that maybe just toughing it out is flawed and can tend to backfire, and perhaps we are thinking about how to take risks the wrong way. And, you know, here on First In Line, I'm trying to convince everyone out there to take some more risks in their life, and I certainly want you to take them the right way. So, Steve, talk to me about how did you get into this field of research and study and um, what have you learned high level so far? We'll go into the details in a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. Um, I, I think why I got into this is is pretty simple. It goes all the way back to my sporting days. As I was a, a pretty high level runner growing up in high school. And what else is running except kind of being in your own head like getting bombarded by these thoughts and fatigue and pain telling you to quit. And you've got to figure out how to navigate that. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, that has always, that has kind of stuck around in my head and kind of served as the backdrop of this book or this idea, which is how do we navigate those spaces? Like you talk about risk. Well, risk is about almost dealing with that angel or devil on your shoulder where one voice is telling you like, hey, go forward, approach this thing. And another voice is telling you like, run away, escape. Like this is anxiety driven, like get out of here. So I really wanted to see like, how could we, what did the latest science and psychology tell us and how to navigate these things? And from a high level, what it essentially said is most of us just kind of take a hammer and use that as the approach and say, you know, what whatever is in front of us, we're going to use a hammer to try and bulldoze, you know, knock it down, get through it and just kind of put our head down. And that works sometimes. But what the, again, the latest psychology, science, best performers all tell us is that we need way more tools than a hammer. There are more ways to get through a problem or decide if you want to take that risk and whether it's worth it or not. And we should develop those tools so that we're ready and can select the right one um, so that no matter what we're facing, we're going to be able to navigate it. I think that's really interesting and thoughtful, and I'm sure there's a lot of really interesting science that's gone into it as well. But I guess to back up, like when I say doing a hard thing, like what comes to mind for Like what are the types of things that people are facing when they think about doing hard things? Yeah, so this is, I think this is really broad. To me, it's almost anything that um, evokes that feeling of discomfort or anxiety or maybe a little dread or nervousness where you're just like, okay, like, can I handle this thing? Can I handle this physical workout? That could be a run. It could be lifting weights. Can I handle going into this job interview and taking this risk in my career? 
can I handle, you know, approaching someone and asking the question that might be a little bit, you know, difficult to um, or controversial? Can you do those things? So that's the beautiful thing about hard things is, is that it could be in your athletic world life. It could be in your personal life. It could be in your business or professional life. It's it's all those things that kind of push us to shy away. What I want the listeners and readers to do is whenever you have that feeling of, oh, I'm going to I'm going to back off, shy away and avoid this thing. Maybe just sit there and say, hey, is this one of these hard things where if I went towards it, I might see it as opportunity to to grow. Mm -hmm. And what is wrong with the bulldozing approach? Because <laughs> I've certainly done that before. I'm like, all right. Like I remember I'm I'm a runner as well. Maybe not like the marathoner that you might be, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I used to think when I was younger, like running a mile was really hard. And I was like, but one day I was just like, I'm just going to do it. And I did it. And I think I like almost threw up afterwards. And, um, I felt like I bulldozed my way into it. Like, I think a lot of us do this when we're approaching hard things and we say, you know what, I'm just going to go for it and plow through the wall. Is it like we get exhausted? I mean, whether physically or mentally, like we're throwing up or is it that like we exerted too much energy and now we don't want to try another hard thing the next time? Like what psychologically is happening to us when we're doing those things? Yeah, so absolutely. So first off, I think it, it is a strategy that works uh, and it's a strategy that I've used often in my life. But where I think it goes wrong is it pits every challenge is almost instead of seeing it as a challenge to overcome as this threat that I need to get through because it becomes the enemy, right? It's like, mm -hmm. okay, I'm just going to push my th way through this mile and this mile really sucks, but I'm going to get on the other side of it and push until I throw up. Well, that, that can work really well. If you have in that situation, like the motivation and the intrigue to do the thing, but where it often backfires is when that motivation isn't there or when we reach down and say, hey, I'm just going to push through this. And for whatever reason that day, there's nothing there. You know, as a runner, I'm sure you've had those moments where it's like, OK, I'm going to reach down. It's trying time to dig. And then you reach down and you're like, oh, there's nothing like I'm tapped out. I'm, yeah. I'm done. Totally. And and in those moments, if you don't have a plan B, if you don't have another tool, then you're kind of just spiral, right? You'd be like, okay, I tried. And you, you kind of spiral or in running, you slow down. And what I'm trying to express and say, hey, there's more tools than, than just pushing through. For instance, we can kind of reframe, you know, the challenge and say like, okay, maybe my A goal of completing the marathon in whatever time is gone, but what else can I get out of this? What's my B or C goal? Or reframe it as, or we can change kind of how we experience the, um, the challenge itself instead of pushing through it, take a more like Eastern approach and say, you know what, I feel the pain and fatigue, but I'm just going to try and sit with it and just kind of be in this moment instead of like fight it off. And all of those different strategies can work in different moments. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I certainly felt that when I was starting my first company, Britain Co. I was 25. I had no idea what I was doing. It was one of the most uncomfortable things. And it, it's not uncomfortable for a day. It's uncomfortable for months to years. <laughs> and, um, and I think the hardest part about 
this in terms of entrepreneurship is that you have to fake it to the world as if it's not a hard thing and <laughs> and that you're okay. You're totally fine. You're not like dying and spinning in anxiety every day, like wondering if what you're doing is correct. Like, But um, I now help coach a lot of people to become entrepreneurs and to run their companies. And I know you do as well. And so, you know, are there also hard things that may be hard for years? <laughs> like, uh, and, and what's the strategy there? Because yeah, that's different yeah. than like, I'm going to run a mile today. Uh, absolutely. And this is, you know, in the book I write about embracing the reality of your situation. So if you live in kind of delusional land and you think that, hey, you know, this entrepreneurship, like this is going to be difficult for a day or a week or like just a little bit and, and then I'll get through it and then it'll be all grand and glorious as I, you know, see on TV or hear on podcasts or whatever have you. If you live in that, eventually your brain's going to figure it out. And you're gonna, you're, your brain almost will sound the alarm and be like, hey, man, we thought this was going to be tough for a week. We're six months into this, and this is like anxiety-filled. And what happens is if your expectations don't have at least some overlap with reality, your brain kind of sounds the alarm and hits the panic button. But if we go into it and we say, hey, this is going to be tough for a really long time, if we say, you know... These are the challenges that are gonna, I'm going to face. This is the anxiety I'm going to feel. These are the things that I'm going to have to deal with. Then it's like, again, starting on the marath on the line of the marathon and saying, hey, I've got a whole marathon. And, and somewhere around, you know, past halfway, it's going to get really difficult. And I just have to kind of accept that. There's no escaping that reality. Mm -hmm. And I think when we go in with that mindset better, it allows us to, to handle the thing. And in fact, there's some wonderful research that shows and people who go through kind of long-term trauma traumatic experiences, whether it's, you know, um, entrepreneurship, yeah, entrepreneurship, <laughs> death of loved That's, ones, like all, yes, it, that too. Any, yes. Death it, as well. <laughs> anything that, anything that will cause like severe pain and suffering for a while is one of the most important things is like having a clear vision of, okay, this is real. This is lasting. I can't just push this away or avoid it. And then the second part that is really important is once you accept that is kind of make sense of and make meaning of it. In the in the case of entrepreneurship, it's like, well, why am I going to suffer for a year or two or more? Like, what's the purpose of that? Is that worth is the juice worth the squeeze? Is this going to have the payoff that I want? And that that answer might differ a little bit over time. But I think as long as you kind of reflect back on it and have that clear clarity, it allows you to get through the really difficult thing in a much healthier and more productive way. It still might suck for a while, but you're going to be able to do it. And I could see that applying to a lot of other parts of life, right? Like I know a lot of people who are like, it's a risk to get a divorce, but I think I'll be happier on the other side. And um, my kids, are, it's going to be hard for my kids and it's going to be hard for me and like my friend groups. And and so is there like a pro-con chart we should be using here? <laughs> like, um, or like, how do we know that the, the ROI is going to come back to us? So the best thing is actually not a pro-con chart. Although if you like those, go for it. The best thing is, uh, according to research, is gaining perspective. So what happens when we're in those moments where you're thinking about divorce or doing something drastic in your life, stress tends to narrow us 
which distorts how we see the world and our kind of perceptions. So in that moment, you can't actually make a rational pro-con chart because like your your perception is just so distorted because the stress is is focusing you on the quote unquote threats ahead. Just like if we were, you know, thousands of years ago out on the savanna and you hear something rustle rustle in the bushes, like your brain's going to lock on on the bushes to see if it's a threat or not. The same thing happens in in our modern world only in like physical or psychological threats instead of physical ones. So what the research clearly shows is what we have to do is use either tricks or tactics to get us to zoom out. So this is why the old advice to, you know, talk to a friend or ask, how would a friend see this or answer this question works mm-hmm. so well because it creates that 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 perspective. Other things that actually really work well and that some of them sound really crazy, but if you if you're making your pros and cons chart or you're talking yourself through it is to do so in either second or third person instead of first person. Hmm. Because when you sit there and you're like, well, you know, if I get this divorce, I might feel this and it might affect me in this way. What happens is, again, it causes you to narrow. If you start saying Steve or Brett or Sarah Mm -hmm. or Adam in place of that, what happens is your brain kind of literally interprets it as like, oh, this this must be someone else we're thinking about. Mm. So it drags kind of your cognition out a little bit so that you can kind of see the picture a, a little bit more clearer. So anything that you can do in your life if you're struggling with that moment is how do I get perspective? And there's a bunch of tactics and tools. Another quick couple quick ones that I love is just spending time outside in nature because mm. just being in nature tends to like zoom us out and make forest us realize. Forest bathing. Yeah, yeah. I'm all about the forest bathing. It, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, that's why I tell, you know, anyone I'm working with is like, hey, if you're struggling with the decision, just if you got a, a forest or a park nearby, just go for a walk, like throw yeah. the phone at home and just go for a walk because often that can kind of clear you up and give you that perspective you need. Um, well, I'm very good at that. I actually did it this morning. And the key is to not bring like your podcast headphones, even though I know everyone wants to listen to First in Line all the time. I get it, you guys. But like no headphones, no phone, maybe an Apple Watch to track your movement. Um, <laughs> but it's so true. I do it. I do it frequently when I'm meandering a big decision. But it's also it's less a meditation. Sometimes things come to you that you didn't expect. Um, but I was going to ask you about this idea of um, – group thought because um i maybe i'm over genderizing but i've i've worked in the field of women's companies and brands for um many many years now and i do find that women in particular again generalizing happen to be more comfortable taking risks if um they're in like a community of people that are also taking the risk and uh, it feels safer because they're not doing it alone. Is there research about this? And is it a tactic you would recommend? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that allows us or gives that security to um, allow us to take risks is a sense of connection and belonging. So if we feel like we belong, then we're more likely to step outside of our comfort zone. 
And there's actually a, a wonderful study, one of my favorite studies that I came across in researching the book, that took wom- women and they stuck them in an fMRI machine to look at their brain, so like a brain scanner. And while they were in, in the scanner looking at the brain, the researchers put like um, something they were scared of right next to their head. So like a snake or a spider or something like that. They just moved it suddenly next to their head. And not surprisingly, in their brain, their fear center went through the roof. Like they were freaked out. Makes sense. Well, when they ran the same experiment on on different women, but had their significant other or spouse or best friend or someone they were connected to in the in the room with them holding their hand they put that spider or snake next to their head the fear center only goes up a little bit Mm. and the the reason is pretty simple is because when we feel like we're connected and supported and belong and all that stuff it makes the difficult it literally changes our perception of the difficult it makes it seem more manageable Mm-hmm. And the same thing applies to more, as I said, like psychological risks. So if we're looking at, should I, you know, sell my company or make have this merger, or make this big move, you're more likely to take that, that calculated risk if you feel supported. If you have mm-hmm. friends, colleagues, coworkers who you know that, you know, whether this works or not will have your back. And will support you and will help you either move forward through the challenge or even pick up the pieces. And in, in sport, actually, there's some, again, some fascinating research that shows that athletes tend to choke less when they feel like they're a bigger part of the team. Mm. Because choking in sport occurs when we feel like all the pressure is on. And if, yeah. we, if we mess up, it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm a failure. Right. Well, that that kind of we almost like share the burden when we realize, oh, like my teammates got my back. Like if I mess up, yeah, it sucks. But someone else is going to like step in and lift me up and we're going to be OK. So my advice to other people is like create that team in your own life is like have that group of supporters where, you know, win or lose, they're going to have your back and they're going to pick you up or like push you forward and that gives you often the security to take those those challenging uh, risks or, or do those hard things. Yeah. One of the things I learned from a lot of really influential people is to develop your own personal board of directors. It's your five-person team, let's call it five, um, of, of people you go to when you need to make a big decision. And it could be your spouse or a family member, but it could be a close friend. It could be a colleague. Uh, someone who you know will give you really honest feedback and who will likely endure with you through whatever you go through, right? Is is that similar to some of the advice you would give? Yeah, absolutely. I love that advice uh, because that's what it is. And I think too often, you know, talking about this idea of resilience or toughness, too often we think of it as like a lonely journey where it's like, I just have to get through it myself. But the reality is that if we have that that board of directors, that team that can help us navigate us, we're going to make better decisions. We're going to be able to handle the tough stuff better. So absolutely, I think that's wonderful advice. And I, I'd recommend the same thing to everybody else um, is have that board of directors. It's such a easy or such a simple way to kind of instill that connection in your life. Do you find that conversely men do not have the support systems that women have? And does that hinder some of the risks that they take? 
Oh, absolutely. Often it does. And, and often it's because, again, men especially have that almost ego and, and where it tells them. What? Like, I've never seen a male ego. Yeah. Who knew that? Uh, right? Yeah. But it, it's got this driver where we want to be the person who does it and it does it on her own and like conquers the challenge and what have you. And not surprisingly, our ego gets in the way. And that often is the downfall of some, you know, good leaders or people in high positions is they kind of want to be that rugged individual that kind of myth that we mythologize in society. But all they're doing is shooting themselves in the foot, because the more you go into that kind of rugged individual life and let that ego take over, the narrower and narrower your world and perspective gets which means the worse and worse your decision-making gets because you can't see their full spectrum of reality that, you know, the problem might um, include. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's also interesting that overall, uh, and I'm very pro-male, by the way, um, and I'm (laughs) pro-non-binary, but the statistics do show that women, when they do take that risk, when they finally get over the hump and maybe it's their support system um, or maybe it's uh, their ability to just to build that resilience. They are the better investor. They are the better CEO. You know, they are taking the more calculated approach, um, which I think is really interesting as well. They're not bulldozing into it, as you would probably say. Yeah, there's some, the, again, I'll go back to the research. There's some fascinating work on on both those things that you talked about there is that Often when it comes to decision-making, women tend to, again, we're speaking in broad generalities here, they tend to do a better job of looking at different perspectives and considering a whole picture. Men tend to what we call is it get locked in. So they get locked in on the goal and then get blind to everything else in their perspective, which can be very beneficial if like the goal is all that matters and it's like life, life or death. But if it's not, and there's, we might want to pivot, what research shows is men tend to have a harder time pivoting because they're kind of locked into it. And then the other thing that I think is really interesting in this area, and again, this comes from teams and sport, but there's some fascinating work that shows that um, women, and, and again, generalization, they do best in those competitive situations when they know they have a shot. So men will tend to compete almost no matter what, even when they have no shot, which can be, again, (laughs) can backfire a lot of times. Right. And it's a waste of time and and effort to me. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. Women tend to almost flip this switch where it's like once they know they have a shot in sport to win or score or whatever in life to get the deal or what have you, it's almost like their competitive instincts come on. Mm. So. To me, again, if you're working, again, we're speaking generalities, but for men, I'm I'm trying to get them to stop competing when it doesn't matter. Right. And, and for women, I'm trying to say, okay, you do have a shot. Like, this right. is how you have a confidence. shot. Yeah. Right. It's, well, yeah, it's part confidence and part just explaining to them what the shot is and why they have the shot. And that was, I mean, it kind of happened to me, right? I was, again, when I was starting my first company, I was newly 25. <laughs> I had managed a total of three people ever in my life. And um, 
I I wasn't going to do it because I thought I didn't have a shot at being successful because I needed way more experience and I probably needed to like manage more people. And, you know, I had all these reasons why not. And um, it, it, both men and women in my board of advisors <laughs> sat me down and explained to me why this was a white space opportunity, why I could do it, why I might be successful. And, and within the course of a one night conversation, I decided to go for it and I never looked back. And so, um, I, I wish so badly that, uh, to your point, like more people, more women gained that perspective and confidence, more men <laughs> gained maybe the clarity of figuring out their shot. And I think we might all take a little bit smarter risks in our life. Um, but I want to talk to you about some of the folks I spoke with who told me about the biggest risks they've ever taken. These are people that are pretty influential. You probably know some of their names. The first one I spoke with was Tyra Banks. I was a very successful model on top of the world, on top of my game. But I wanted to be a talk show host. I wanted to express myself in ways that I was never able to by being a fashion model. And I remember making that decision taking that risk and saying, I don't think I can pose in pictures for a living and be taken seriously for my thoughts on television, for my opinions, for my advice. And so I remember there was a big fashion modeling contract, a continuation of a big contract. I think it was about a three-year extension in front of me, millions of dollars, millions more of eyes being able to see me in that high, beautiful fashion epitome of success. And I turned it down. And I said, I have to focus and I have to show the world that I am more than just this woman that poses in pictures and walks on runways. I often wonder, was that the right decision? Back in my day, you couldn't be so much of a multi-hyphenate or a renaissance woman as you can today. But I wonder, could I have been a leader back then and continued to prance and dance on a runway and be taken seriously as a talk show host? I don't know. I don't know if my hindsight is twenty twenty. I don't know if it's cloudy, but I do know that we won multiple Emmys for my talk show. I don't know. Was it a risk that was worth it? The talk show could have failed. It could have been a hot mess and I would have had no modeling contract and no television talk show. Was it luck? Was it hard work? I think it's a combination of both. I remember... To be successful for my talk show, I got rid of the nice, beautiful house that I lived in, actually gave it to my mother, and I moved to very modest apartments across the street from my talk show office. 90% of talk shows fail the first season and not many get to a second season. And so I said, I literally have to almost live at the studio to make this work. I dedicated my life to that and said goodbye to a former life. Maybe I made the right decision. I think I did. 
She told me that her biggest risk was turning down millions of dollars as a supermodel to try to become someone new, a talk show host. So let me start by asking you this, Steve. How do you turn down opportunities you might desire when you want to go do something else and you're not sure it's going to work? Yeah, that's that's a big thing. Um, so here's what I think, again, I would say and the research shows is that Clarity of meaning and purpose really matter a lot here because it's very easy, especially in our kind of modern world, to get distracted by shiny objects. And in this case, like, you know, millions is a very important shiny object. And that might matter a lot more to someone who, say, you know, doesn't have the financial security. And they might say, you know what, I can't turn this down. But someone else who has a little bit more financial security and what have you, they might say, you know what, forget this. I'm taking this risk over here because my clarity, my purpose, the meaning, the thing that I want to do is over in this other direction here. So again, if you're asking me how you turn down a million dollars, I have no idea for that. But um, what I would say is that real important part is that clarity of purpose, meaning, like what you're actually after and sticking to that. That's the hard part is that we can all sit here and, you know, reflect on our values and maybe your company or organization has had you come up with core values, but that exercise isn't meaningful unless those are the things that really freaking matter. So to me, it comes back to in those hard decisions is like, get at what really matters to you. And then in then that difficult moment, like reflect back on those and go through that checklist of like, well, what one really supports my values and my purpose or mission in this place? And if the shiny object doesn't, then, you know, it takes a little guts, but often the right thing is to, to turn it down and, and go the other way. And how would you coach someone on finding that purpose or, you know, we, we call it their passion, right? And are there different types of passion? I've heard about the terms obsessive passion and harmonious passion. And like, what, what is my passion? Like, I think a lot of people are like, I don't know what my passion is. I would take the million dollars because who knows what else I would do. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought up the passion because this is really what it gets at centrally. Um, Obsessive passion is essentially when you are, we talked about stress narrowing us. Obsession, obsessive passion narrows us as well. It narrows us on, we do the thing almost out of a place of addiction where we have to, or we are chasing the hit, which is often in this case, the shiny object, the money, et cetera, et cetera. So if you find yourself, again, chasing that hit of money or status or what have you, then you might think, I am passionate, but I'm more over in this obsessive, obsessive passion side. And what we know from the research is that that obsessive passion tends to last a little bit, but it burns quickly. And it pushes us from wanting to, to having to, right? Mm -hmm. And once we, we feel like we have to do the thing, our motivation is going to kind of wane and backfire and we're going to be in a bad spot. So mm -hmm. more, more what we want is to create that what we call harmonious passion, which is kind of that wanting to do it out of your interest, your joy, because it like fills your bucket up. Not all the time, but most of the time it's a positive contributor. And the way to kind of stay in that 
is to keep your motivational kind of the central things that kind of fuel that passion as intrinsic motivators. So the joy of pursuing it, the I'm doing this almost as like a craftsman instead of just for the shiny objects or accolades. I'm Mm -hmm. doing this because like it has some sort of greater purpose than just to make me feel good or wealthy or what have you. If you can kind of keep, again, most of the motivational fuel in those kind of areas, then you're more likely to have that kind of harmonious passion and you're more likely to uh, last in uh, in terms of motivation and drive and all those things that, that allow you to fulfill your goals or pursuits. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. One of the hardest parts of being an entrepreneur and mom is making sure I create a daily routine that keeps me healthy. AG1 is a big part of making sure I win my mornings. Instead of taking endless vitamins and pills, one scoop of AG1 provides 75 high-quality vitamins and minerals, whole food-sourced ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help me start my day right. It gives me the peace of mind I need to ensure I'm taking care of my gut health, supporting my immune system, and naturally boosting my energy and focus. As a listener of First in Line, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Morin to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This episode is brought to you by Element. I'm obsessed with all things health and wellness. I love learning about the latest trends, trying different hacks, and figuring out what works best for my body. And if there's one thing I know for certain, it's that hydration is essential to better health. Unfortunately, most of us don't realize that there's a more effective way to hydrate. Element is a tasty, science-backed electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means just the right amount of salt without all the sugar, food coloring, artificial ingredients, and other unnecessary fillers. Right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single-serving packets free with any Element order. That's a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a friend. Get yours at drinklmnt.com slash Brit. Try it risk-free and experience the endless benefits of better hydration. Do you think status and money are the two biggest culprits of obsessive passion because I, I I'm thinking as you're talking I'm like oh, I think we all have we all have both of these like we all we all have obsessive passion I would like to make more money and I would like more status and but I remember for so many years you know trying to get the likes on Instagram and you know running a media company like how many page views did we get today how many users came to the site how many people downloaded the app like and um how, do people like me? You know, are they engaging? Are they commenting? Are they nice? Like, I cared so much what people thought. I wanted to make the business successful because I wanted to make money. And and it's not – that's not who I am. Um, I, It's random because I'm a venture capitalist now too. Like, you would think like clearly – she's a – literally capitalist is in her job title. Like, she wants to make money, which is fair. I do. But the point of me – becoming a venture capitalist in this in this new mature age of Brit Morin is that like I want to help build the next big idea that might change the world. And I want to find founders that are so excited about that idea 
um, who who might maybe have even been overlooked. Um, and I found them, and I and believed in them, and I gave them the confidence and maybe some tools or tips and and the money, and they they went on to change the world. And in ten years, if some of the things that I've done and invested in have changed the world, like then I know I will have succeeded. And so that's my harmonious passion now, right? And that's why I'm doing this podcast. I'm like, there aren't enough people who know about these things that are, might change the world. And I want I want everyone to have the same footing as I do here in Silicon Valley. And so uh, what I'm saying is like, I think we all have this obsessive passion. I still look at the likes on Instagram and I they don't mean as much to me as before, but I look and think we all do. But um, is there a way we can move towards harmonious passion more in our lives? <laughs> yeah. So the I, you bring up a, a great point there, Britt, which is often people think it's like either or. And the reality is we're all human. Like we are, we're, we have both, of course. The, yeah. the kind of instruction I give is like, we just want to make sure that like we're at least 51% harmonious. And okay. I can do 51 if, <laughs> you know, if we start going the other way, because the, if you go the other way, for example, to give you a, a warning, is there's research that shows that like those who have way more obsessive passion, they tend to start cheating or commit fraud in the workplace or cheating in sport and using performance enhancing drugs. And the reason is simple is because they're so obsessive passionate that the likes or money or status becomes more important. Mm -hmm. So... Of course, like the the thing is, okay, I'm going to cheat because that gives me more of this. So the reality is, okay, how do we keep that balance and, and keep ourselves harmonious passion? Here, I love to turn to um, the research on, on motivation um, called self-determination theory, hmm. which basically tells us that we need to satisfy three things, one of which we've already talked about, and that is belonging and connection. If we feel like we belong in our pursuit, in our work, et cetera, it keeps us more in that harmonious you know, area. So surround yourself wisely. The other two things, the, the first is um, autonomy, meaning we need to feel like we're in some sort of control, like mm. we have a voice and a choice in the thing that we do. So in the workplace, it's making sure that you don't feel micromanaged to death or that like your contribution doesn't matter or your voice can't be heard all the time. So creating that sense of autonomy. And then that, that third thing is uh, competency, which basically means we have a path forward. We can make progress. We can get better at whatever it is we're trying to master. And if you keep that progress and that, hey, I'm, I'm getting better at my job or my work or improving the skill, then again, it keeps you on, it keeps that kind of intrinsic motivation flame lit and keeps you more on that harmonious side of the equation. Hmm. I think competency is a really interesting one uh, because I know many high performing and high achieving people who then go to try something new and they think it should be like a hockey stick growth curve. They're like, I'm a very smart person. I'm like very established. I'm blah, 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 like, and it's much more linear than they would have thought. And um, I, I know this is true for me in many areas of my life too. I'm a perfectionist, achiever, Enneagram 3. I'm very self-aware of all the things. Uh, and I'm very frustrated when I'm not good at something early on. But you know, to your point, like weeks or months or years go by and 
suddenly I'm like, whoa, I'm like pretty good at this thing now, <laughs> you know? And and so it's truly like the one foot in front of the next type of thing, right? I'm sure when Tyra was deciding to be a talk show host, she didn't know how to be a talk show host. <laughs> like when I started a podcast, I didn't know how to start a podcast. I didn't know how to interview people. There's, like it, it, you just you just learn as you go. And so isn't part of it also just like being kind to yourself in those beginning days and having that beginner's mindset when you're taking a new risk in a category that's really scary to you? A- absolutely. It's, it is that beginner's mindset or, you know, what I like to call my, my wife is an elementary school teacher. So she gives me all these stories, but I, I kind of call it like the first grade or kindergarten mindset, which is you literally, all you're doing at that age is exploring and dabbling and trying things. And sometimes you get like obsessed with something and you get better and better and better, but you don't take the the ego hit of like, oh man, I just started this thing called soccer and I'm not very good. So I'm going to quit right away. No, you just keep playing it. And eventually you look up and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm all right at this. It's the same mm-hmm. with reading, writing, every skill. And I think if we can kind of encapsulate that and bring that back a little bit it helps us in so many ways not only in terms of our competency but it also helps us to like quiet our ego down a little bit because we have something where maybe at first we're not very good at and we have to remember what it's like to struggle and practice and try different things and not be very good at it and that can kind of give us some empathy and understanding for others who are maybe like learning a skill or trying something, you know, new and stretching outside of their their comfort zone when we ask them to. So we got to mm-hmm. give them kind of the the room and space to grow. Yeah, I think it's a good reminder to also cheer on the people in your life that you know are trying something new and might be struggling with it because to your point, that belonging, that support system is so key in keeping them on track, right? And and just how beautiful is it of, if we can all do that for one another? <laughs> like, instead of asking like, so how's work going? Like, did you get pr- that promotion yet? It's like, what's what new things are you trying that are hard right now? Like, that would be a better question to maybe ask your friend at dinner. All right. So I also spoke with my friend, Gary Vaynerchuk. Many of us know him as an established entrepreneur and investor, but many years ago, Gary took a really big risk. The greatest risk I took was a bet that I had the emotional stomach to deal with being grossly underpaid by my family while I built a business for them, knowing at 18 to 22 that I was going to be a special businessman and that it was gonna work. Building a family business from a four to a $70 million business, and yet never getting paid more than $100,000 a year is an incredibly difficult challenge, not at 22, 23, 24, 25, because you love your parents so much and you wanna give back and it feels right and you love the liquor business and the wine business, but at 27, 28, 29, 30, when you're starting to become a little older, you're thinking about getting married, you're thinking about having a family, wait a minute, how am I going to buy a house and all these other things and resentment and all those things. And so it was a huge risk. Family businesses lead to a lot of people not talking to each other anymore. It was a huge risk, but I had a lot of self-awareness. And I sit today as a 46 year old man and say that 22 to 34 building a business for my parents is the greatest thing I ever did. I sit here as someone who, as he's filming this, can't wait for tomorrow because I'm going to go see my parents for five days and I have the greatest relationship with them. But it was an absolute risk. 
one that I understood and wasn't sure exactly how it was gonna play out. I was optimistic, it played out that way, but it was a huge risk against my own emotional graph. You know, creating resentment against family in a family business is the ultimate fear. So many brothers and sisters and parents and siblings and children, parents don't speak to each other today because of money. And so the risk at that young of an age, before I was 21, knowing that I had it in me to not be angered or, or miffed or resentful was scary, but paid off huge. He decided to work with his family at a young age. <laughs> he knew he was going to get underpaid. He also knew that families that work together can be torn apart especially if greed comes into the picture. There's a lot of frustration and resentment that are part of the experience. But today, Gary is closer to his family than ever, even though he felt underpaid for years. So my question for you, Steve, is how do you design an environment that might allow you to tackle these difficult challenges, especially one where there are a lot of people really close to you inside of it, and that could hinder a relationship? Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one because with family, everything gets a little amplified. So <laughs> here's what I'll, I'll come back to. And I think that we talked about this a little bit, but like clarity and setting intentional boundaries are really important here. So when, oftentimes what happens when we work with family or what have you is boundaries get crossed and we don't know when we're being, you know, worker or boss or CEO versus like son, daughter, you know whatever, whatever it is, you know, father, all those good things. And actually, I'll use the analogy, you often see this in sport, where relationships, especially early on with like, prodigy athletes are often damaged because they see the dad as coach more mm -hmm. than, you know, father, or what have you. So there's this little crisscrossing of things. So I think anytime we're working with people who are really close to us is like, have being very intentional and defining that boundary and like what role you're playing in situations you know um i had a really good friend who was a who had a who was a coach and had his son and had a son who was a world-class athlete very early on and he always told me i was like how do you handle this like your son's one of the best in the world and he said you know when i'm at the track i am coach but as soon as we get in that that car i tell my son like I am dad now. We're not talking track. We're not talking sports mm. about this. I am I am dad. I'm not correcting anything. We're moving on from that. And I think that is so important in these situations. And if you set the correct boundaries, I think great things can happen because another thing that we know, again, from psychology and research is that going through difficult things and moments with people who we care about and love actually often bring us together, like in Gary's case there, because the facade almost gets dropped, right? We stop mm -hmm. putting on the mask. We stop trying to act a certain way when we're in the thick of it and we need our company to survive or we need our team to perform. Like we're just focused on that. So all the ego, all the facade goes away. And we really get to get be closer because we understand who each other is and the reality of the situation. And I think, again, if you come in with some some kind of constraints around it, and then allow that to naturally happen, some wonderful bonds and relationships can really occur. Mm -hmm. You're in the trenches together, right? Um, and you, especially when you get out of the trench, <laughs> it um, it does bond you. I, I work with my husband and 
many people ask us how we how we work together. I unfortunately don't follow the coach son rule that you just talked about. <laughs> we talk about work pretty much a lot. Um, we now have children. We tell them about our work. Our kids like have are six and seven and already want to like start their first companies. Um, so should we have more boundaries or is this going to work out for us? <laughs> Oh man, you're putting me on the spot. I think it's going to work out great. So don't, okay, don't, thanks, take, Steve. don't take my advice. Just you're good. No, I, but you know, this is a great example because like we're talking in generalities here and every situation is different. So what I would say is like, you know, as long as you're like reflecting on your process and being intentional on this and thinking, you know, well, is this going to work out or not? Or is this in a positive and productive space? Again, I'll go to my comfort zone. I get to talk to a lot of parents and coaches who have maybe, again, some some teenage kid who's like destined and on their way to the NBA or NFL. And they always ask me, well, like, you know, I don't want to be that parent who's overbearing, but I also care and love my kid and want to support them and talk about this stuff. And I often often tell them it's like everybody's individual and, and different, but like the most important thing is that your kid knows that you love and support them no matter what. And their love isn't contingent on how well they play at the game or whether they get the the big contract or scholarship or whatever you're there regardless. And that's what matters most. And I think that same, you know, idea applies in, in relationships is like, if you and your husband love talking about work and you, you know, it's, it's giving your children a, a great view of like what's possible and getting their ideas and their dreams kind of going great. Like keep it going as long as it's in that positive direction. If it turns, if your child starts seeing it as a burden, it's like, Oh no, if I don't start my company, like, you know, I, <laughs> mom and dad problem. aren't going to love me. Yeah. Yes. Then, it, then it's time to be like, okay, wait a minute. We got to step back. But like, if that's not the case, then, then go for it. Well, so far, I, I don't think we're pushing because I think he's he, our oldest is seven years, you know, <laughs> we have a playhouse, a new playhouse in the backyard. And the other day I was like, what do you want to do with the playhouse? Like, uh, let's design like what we should put in it, maybe some like bunk beds or, you know, whatever. And he said, no, I'm going to start a restaurant. It's called Dash Cafe and um, I will be like serving food and, and like everything's going to be made super fast and here's where I'm going to put the blender and the blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you don't have to productize the playhouse. Like it doesn't need to be your business. It could just be a playhouse. And he's like, no. And he, he wants me to now order like the blender and the omelet maker and all the things. Um, so – I'm I'm going with this right now. I'm letting him go. This is his harmonious passion, I think, maybe not obsessive passion. <laughs> and I'm going to help support him until it feels like he wants to change his mind. I, I love it. I mean, that's the best thing you can do. And as I said, kids, it's the elementary school effect. Like kids see it, hear a policeman talk at school and they're obsessed with police and they hear something else and it, it, it just changes and you just support them as they kind of figure out their, their way through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Amy Porterfield. Amy is one of the biggest digital influencers. She has helped so many people learn how to 
quit their job and start a business. But this was actually a really big problem for her that she experienced. Hey there, I'm Amy Porterfield, host of the Online Marketing Made Easy podcast. And I wanted to tell you about a time when I took a major leap of faith. It was 13 years ago. I was the director of content development for peak performance coach, Tony Robbins. I had an amazing job. I got to travel the world. I got to work on content that Tony did on stage. It was incredible. However, I had started to feel like I wanted to be my own boss. I wanted more freedom. I wanted to work when I wanted to work, where I wanted to work, how I wanted to work. However, I never ever thought I'd be a business owner. I was not setting out to be an entrepreneur. I just knew I wanted something different and I wanted to call the shots. I wanted to be my own boss. So when I decided, I think I need to start my own business and go out on my own, it was about a year till I finally took that leap of faith. I was so scared. I'm a safety kind of girl. I like to have uh, the security of a nine to five job. I like to feel grounded. I like the benefits coming in and everything taken care of for me. However, I started to create or crave freedom more than that. And so what happened was about a year after I decided, I think I might need to start my own business, I actually took the leap. So it took me a little while to get the courage to do so. I remember I was driving out of the San Diego headquarters and on the radio on my very last day as I was leaving behind that chapter of my life, the song, Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles came on the radio. And I thought, this is a sign. Here comes the sun. This is happening. I'm doing this. Now, as I went into entrepreneurship, it was a very rocky road. The first two years of being my own boss it was nothing like I thought it would be. Nothing worked out as planned. It was very messy. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. But on the most difficult days, my why, wanting more freedom, wanting more flexibility, wanting to be my own boss, my why would pick me up off the ground when things would crumble and kind of push me back out into the world to keep going. And I'm so glad I took that leap of faith. I always say that my worst day as an entrepreneur, when nothing's going right, everything's going wrong, and crumbling around me. The worst day as a business owner is still better than the best day in a nine to five job. I really do believe that. So my friend, it's time to take that leap of faith. Let's do this. She had a dream job. She was working for Tony Robbins. I think a lot of people know who Tony Robbins is, but if not, he's I think like one of the world's best known life coaches. Um, she had an amazing salary, benefits, and safety. But she was feeling like freedom was missing for her life. And she was inspired to build something on her own and leave her comfort zone. So she, she did. I think similar to Tyra, she felt that intrinsic need to go follow this new direction. And I know we've touched on this, but I, I do think this is where people get stuck because the comfort zone is so comfortable. There's nothing wrong with their job. They enjoy it. They could see a future doing this. It's maybe not even that hard for them anymore. So how does one build that inner confidence to try something new, even if it means leaving the comfort zone? Yeah, I love this example because what you're looking at to build that, that confidence is a couple different things. First, I like to call it confidence needs evidence. So reflecting on how you got to the place that you did and the success that you've had and the work that you've done, anything that kind of reminds your brain that, oh, yeah, like I am a capable 
person. Like, even though I'm in this job and I might be trying something different, like, I figured out how to get to this place. That kind of bolsters that inner confidence where your brain goes, okay, yeah, this isn't, we're not faking it here. We've we've been in similar positions. And then the other thing that is really important is that often what I think is people People have this misunderstanding that they have to almost take the big leap instantly and they need this huge bowl of confidence to do so. But instead, what you can do is kind of dabble and explore and take small steps to build that confidence along the way. So if you're not ready to take that leap in your job, we'll start doing something or start researching outside of your job on the next thing you're going to do. So if you're going, uh, again, I'll use the example uh, this close to my heart is if you're going from working for Tony Hawk Robbins to saying that like, oh, I'm going to write a book or what have whatever have you totally different than Amy. But then what you should do is start your own newsletter or start something where you're just practicing writing every day while you still have that job. Mm-hmm. And I think in Amy's case, it's like, well, start working on on marketing or whatever have you in some way. So that you almost give yourself that evidence of like, okay, like there's some, I don't know if I can totally do this, but I have a proof of concept and I feel good about taking that, this risk. And it's not just, I'm venturing off into the woods unknown. So, so start small. Don't think I got to make the big jump instantly. Just take small steps. And eventually that will prepare you when it's time to make the giant leap. Mm, it's kind of what you were saying earlier too, which is that uh, women especially, but probably all of us, need to see that there is a shot and we need that evidence that there is a proof of concept <laughs> that it works. And it's something I teach entrepreneurs too. It's, it's um, you know, like I'm not going to go fund your next big idea until I see like anything. It could literally be that you did a survey on SurveyMonkey and a hundred people answered it and said they want this product or like, give me something. Tell me a little bit about why this is going to work. And I don't think it's just for me. I really believe to your point, it's for them too. They need to know that there is something here. There's an opportunity to take this in a bigger direction. Absolutely. All right. Let's talk about Greg Eisenberg. Tell me about one of the biggest risks you've taken. Probably the biggest risk I've taken was in December 2018. I had been running Islands, which was a community platform, community social network, uh, raised a few million dollars for it. And by the end of 2018, uh, we were basically out of money. So we decided to sell the company and everything was looking great. We had an offer from a company I was really excited about. And uh, basically, I get a call Christmas Eve 2018. Uh, the stock market at that time was really tanking. And this particular company was really, really tanking too. Um, and uh, our sponsor, our deal sponsor was like, sorry, man, like the board won't approve this deal. We're n- we're actually doing no M&A uh, at all. And, uh, you know, I hung up the phone and spent that Christmas week, Christ- uh, Christmas and Christmas week and New Year's really just sort of uh, thinking about what, what can I do? And uh, I basically funded the business um, with all my savings uh, to basically find a, a, a landing spot. And it was one of the biggest risks I've taken because at the time everyone was telling me, Greg, like 
just shut down the company. It's okay. Um, but I really, really wanted to find a landing point, a landing spot. And I'm so happy I did because uh, people from that sale were able to buy houses for their family um, and, you know, that sort of thing. So it was, it was uh, a great sort of outcome. Uh, we ended up selling to WeWork. And, uh, yeah, it definitely was really difficult to put my head down and, and just mentally get into it, um, January, 2019, but, uh, ended up just literally emailing as many people as possible, trying to speak to as many people as possible. So, um, it all worked out. Um, but yeah, biggest risk I've taken. Greg was a young entrepreneur who almost hit it big when a company wanted to acquire his business. But then out of nowhere, the company decided not to buy his company and left Greg totally out of money. <laughs> so crisis happens, fear sets in, uncertainty sets in, and here's Greg who bet on himself and his team. He decided to pour his life savings into the company to keep it afloat. And eventually, slowly but surely, they sold to WeWork and came out winners. So my question for you about Greg as it relates to the rest of us is like, how do we keep our mind sane when we're going through these crisis moments? Because it's the fight or flight and we don't know if we're going to make it or survive. And a lot of us, I do think, want to give up and quit. Greg didn't quit, but a lot of people quit. What do you say to people who want to quit? Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the toughest things to deal with because it is such a innate natural response is whenever we're in that kind of fight or flight, anxiety rules the day. And often what happens is we enter what I call a freak out moment where our mind just kind of spirals and all we can see is the bad stuff. And that negative voice, the devil on our shoulder is just screaming at us to quit or stop or what have you. And what the research psychology best performers tell us is like we've got to figure out how to kind of turn down that alarm. And the way that you kind of kind of do this is a number of different ways is one is like adopting more of an Eastern mindfulness approach is that any time that you feel stress or anxiety or discomfort is an opportunity to train that mental muscle to not freak out. Mm. So just going, as we talked about earlier, being mindful on a walk instead of listening to a podcast. Sorry, listeners. Like that's a way to <laughs> except train for this that. one. Yeah, except for yes. this one. That's a way to train that mental muscle. Working out, doing something where you feel a little bit of physical pain and you have that voice that tells you to stop instead of listening to it or fighting it, just learning, you know what? I got this voice that's telling me to stop. I'm just going to kind of be with it and, you know, let it kind of ride and try and let it and not re react to it. That trains that mental muscle. So I think. A, in those situations, is give yourself spots where in small doses, you can train that mental muscle so that you can handle the big thing. And then the other thing that I think is really important for keeping your mind steady and, and kind of calm in these moments is part of the reason why our mind freaks out is because we lose all control. It's so uncertain in this case. It's like I'm betting my life savings on this Crazy. thing. Crazy. Yeah. Right? So yeah. you're, you're just, you're, of course your brain's like threat, threat, threat. Like, you know, we're going to freak out. 
So what you have to do is, and I know it's kind of cliche to say control the controllables, but the wonderful thing about a sense of control is that the psychology research tells us it's not that we have to have control over the whole thing, that I have to say, you know what, I'm going to, I know this is going to work out. If we can find control in a very small piece of it, such as, hey, I bet the farm on this, but every day I can go into work and do A, B, and C that give me a better chance of succeeding here. Mm-hmm. And for this, again, I'll, I'll turn to sport, is if you watch any sort of sport, um, tennis, baseball, what have you, you often will see these athletes before they're walking up to the batter's box or about to you know, serve, they go through some sort of ritual, right? They might like tap their hands or gloves or, or a hat or whatever, and you'll see players just go through a ritual. Well, why do they do that? Well, the psychology research tells us that it gives them a sense of control because it almost tricks their brain into saying, oh, okay, I've been in this, I've done this ritual before. So even though I'm walking up to a plate and going to attempt to swing at a, a ball coming 100 miles an hour at me, like I have a little control here because I've been in this spot before. So you can do the same thing in your life when it gets really tough and you're unsure and uncertainty and stress are running rampant is hold on to things and like really have something in your life that that is routine that grounds you that is something that you can kind of reflect on and do every day um that can help you get through those difficult moments i think that's amazing advice what about planning for the downside scenario because this is i immediately go to this and it might be as simple as the other day I had a connecting flight. My flight inbound was delayed, and I knew I would only have 30 minutes to make my next flight. I was at an international airport. I basically felt like this was – I had no hope. So in the moment, I start – I get on kayak. I start researching the next available flight so I know exactly what time I'll be home next, if I need to change my flight, if I miss the gate, if I do all these things. And it's the same thing as if I'm investing in it new stock or in crypto, I'm like, okay, how much am I going to put in? If the downside scenario is I lose $1,000 total, like that's okay because I'll be in this position now and I can handle that. Same thing as if I start a company. Downside is, uh, you know, I started this company at 25. I left my job at Google. If the company fails, I might just go back to that job at Google. Like I think I could get back in there, you know? So how important is it to have your backup plan if plan A doesn't work out? Yeah, so there's two things that are really important here is that one, your your stress response is your your brain stress response is predictive. Meaning your brain is sending you that way because it doesn't have the information to like predict what way it's going. So if you can give it that information or prepare it in case like, you know, you have to go through this situation like missing your flight. What it does is it tam- it dampens down that stress response because your brain goes, oh, you know what? This will suck, but we have another path. So the world's not going to ending. So we don't have to feel as much stress. And this is why actually with athletes, again, I'll go here, is that they'll often do negative visualization where they think of, well, what happens if I miss the pass or hit the golf ball into the sand or water or what have you? Because when their mind has gone through it before, the alarm doesn't go off as loud. It only goes mm-hmm. off a little bit. 
So the same thing is happening here where you're kind of preparing in advance for the worst case scenario or something bad is that's going to happen. And the other thing that I think is really important here is this is in relation to goals is when you have backup goals, what it does is it allows you to I'll circle all the way back to what we talked about at the beginning. It allows you to have perspective. So I'll give you the example from uh, that I learned from elite world-class climbers, like people who climb Mount Everest and stuff like that. The disasters in Mount Everest where people die tend to happen when people are so focused on the A goal, which is reaching the top, that they don't even acknowledge you don't have the B goal, which is often, if I don't reach the top, I want to make it back down the mountain alive. Yeah, that seems important. So when you have <laughs> yeah, when you have both goals in mind, the research psychology tells us that, you know, instead of pushing to the top when you probably shouldn't, you're able to pivot and say, you know what? My B goal was making it back down the mountain alive, and that's the path that I'm gonna go. And I think the same thing occurs when we're talking about difficult decisions in the workplace or in our careers, is that you know, we all want that A goal, but if we've at least thought through, well, what's the second scenario or the third scenario? We don't go from 100 to zero. We're able to go from 100 to 80 and still feel pretty good about being in the game, and, and which keeps us in the game long enough so that, you know, maybe over time we eventually get that A, a goal. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you said that because I do think there's a lot of talk out there about just manifesting the ultimate end game and sticking to that and you don't want that negative thought that you're not going to make. And so um, I think it's just practical and realistic. And and like I said, as simple as a missing my flight scenario to changing careers and, you know, changing my whole life. Like I, I, I like the idea of these backup plans, the second and third prize that we can achieve. Steve, as we are winding down our time together, I guess my last practical question for you is, what can everyone listening start doing today to be a little less risk averse? Um, we've we've heard a bunch of your tips and tricks for when we face these scenarios, these crises, but like, what's just one thing we can start integrating into our life as soon as this podcast is over? So I think the simplest one is just a mindset switch, is embracing discomfort, is whenever you feel that thing, that anxiety, that discomfort, that thing that tells you to pull away, avoid, don't do this. Like, just go towards it a little bit. You don't have to conquer it, but like put yourself in those situations. And the more we put ourselves in those small moments of discomfort, like that's just training over time that prepares us for when we actually have to make that big jump or make that career change. And if we are prepared, we're going to be able to handle it better. Fantastic advice. I second that, everyone out there. Um, Steve, thank you so much for being here today. His book is called Do Hard Things. Where can they find the book and where can they find you? Yeah, you can find the book anywhere the books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, all that stuff. And then I'm on all of social media at Steve Magnus and at stevemagnus.com. Amazing. I hope all of you will check that out. Thank you all for listening today. Thank you, Steve, for being here. And here's to a more resilient world. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. I hope all of you enjoyed hearing from Steve. I know I certainly did. I I actually tend to think I'm someone who's 
pretty good at taking risks. I mean, that's what this podcast is all about, right? I'm here to help Sherpa you along. But I want you to know that even I have taken thousands, hundreds of thousands, I don't know, millions of risks that didn't work out and some that did. And I think a risk can be in all kinds of categories. Let's take creative risks, for instance. This was like the number one reason I started Britain Co. in 2011, because most people in the world actually don't think they're creative. And I think that's crazy because when we were five-year-olds, we thought we were the most creative people ever. And yet as adults, we literally won't paint on a sheet of paper and show it to anybody. We won't doodle a picture and show it to anybody. And it maybe doesn't need to be shown to anybody, but why can't you just do it because it's fun? Why can't you do it to practice something and get better at it? I see a lot of people, especially in Gen Z, that will post something even on Instagram and when it doesn't get the likes they thought it would get, they delete it. It's a risk to even put yourself out there on the internet these days. Sometimes it'll work out, sometimes it won't. How do we move forward? Then there's business risks. That might be changing your career, that might be starting a company, <laughs> might be both things in one. When I left Google to start Britain Co., my parents in particular thought I was insane. I had an amazing job. I was getting promoted every year. I was launching new products. And I was 25. And they said, you have a bright future. You could be an executive at Google. And I said, but I don't want to. <laughs> I have this, this thing inside of me that's bubbling up that makes me believe I should start a company and I should do it now at 25 because there's this white space and I'm young enough to do it and and mostly because I did have people that told me they believed in me. Then there's financial risks. This is a really hard one because who am I to tell anyone out there to go spend money on anything? And yet sometimes it's only by taking financial risks that you do get those big financial gains. I know when I first invested in the stock market, it felt super scary I think I put in literally $1,000, and that was very meaningful to me. In the past year or two, I've been investing even more into crypto and NFTs. Some of those things have worked out. Many of them have not. <laughs> and now I'm a venture capitalist, and I'm literally making bets on investing in new companies all the time. 90% plus will fail. I know that. So what I've learned is – a, you miss all the shots you don't take. <laughs> B, as you take more risks, you actually start to get a little more comfortable taking them, no matter which category. You become more comfortable just putting yourself out there, success or fail. And I think you actually start to understand your inner compass for which risk you want to take on next. The reason why I wanted to become a venture capitalist as the next step in my career was not just to go out and make money and have some flashy title. I wanted to actually be in a position where I could find founders and people who had big ideas that might just change the world and didn't necessarily have a compass to know how to go about that. I wanted to not only be able to write them their first check, but to give them their first vote of confidence, to tell them my stories of how I did it and how they could do it too and to help surround them with the belief system that they needed to keep going, even though I truly believe entrepreneurship is the hardest job in the world. Similarly, I want everyone out there listening to First in Line to know that I am going to be your champion 
and taking any of the risks that we talk about on each of these episodes. We are going to cover the gamut of all kinds of opportunities that are lying right in front of you that you can choose to lean into or not. But if you do lean in and you feel that inner voice calling out to you, even though it's scary, trust me when I say that this podcast and me in particular will be here waiting to guide you through, to push you along, and to make sure you know that no matter what, you do have that shot and you are going to achieve it. I mentioned it when I was talking to Steve, but one thing I do when I'm thinking of taking a risk, and that could be missing my flight or changing careers, is to imagine the worst case scenario, right? I think about what is my plan B, plan C, D, probably all the way down to plan M, (laughs) just to be honest. I've got a lot of plans. I've got a lot of backup plans. What ends up happening most of the time is I never even hit those. Maybe I'll fail, but I don't hit plan M. I'm not failing drastically. And even when I do fail and I get so fearful that people are going to find out about it or someone might say something about me or my ego is going to get bruised or I'm going to lose some money, it's never as bad as it seems and it's over before I know it. Looking back now, as I think about all of the other people in my life I know who are honestly the most successful, they're taking so many risks all the time. They're failing and succeeding and failing and succeeding. And what ends up happening? Well, they're effectively practicing taking risks for a living. They're getting better and better about how to take the risk, which risk to take, how to get through the failure faster, and how to move forward with the things that are winning. Not every risk is an end-all, be-all thing in your life. This isn't going to be the one thing that makes you or breaks you. I encourage everyone out there to take more risk than they thought possible. I think a lot of us only take the one big shot because they think it's the only one they have. But there's always more opportunity out there. And even when you fail, I truly believe that sometimes it's for a reason. Sometimes when you hit that bottom, the next new risk will emerge that might take you back to the top. So to everyone out there, Go inside yourself right now. Think about the things that are making you the most uncomfortable. Think about what feels a little bit scary but intriguing. And know that from me to you, you've got a shot. And there are people around you that love you and will support you through taking it. If you liked this episode, I would love for you to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your shows. And if you want to follow me, I'm at Brit on just about every social network, or you can follow the podcast at First In Line. 